forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual, a podcast hosted by Jessica Crispin. This podcast is possible thanks to the supporters. Um, so if you want to become a supporter, please type in your computer, patreon.com slash public intellectual. Um, if you become a supporter, you get access to extra content and you will also be supporting the amazing work of Jessica Crispin. So we're here to talk about, we're here to do a new series, to introduce a new series on popular culture and political output of the great United States of America. And so we're welcoming as our regular guest, Mr. Nicholas Rodriguez Melo. Hi, Jesse. Hello. Um, so we'll just be talking about some popular culture material um, of the recent past. And we're going to start off with Gillian Flynn. Gillian Flynn, um, the Chicago writer who brought us Gone Girl, who brought us Sharp Objects and Widows. And she's having a kind of peak moment, but it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird moment for Gillian Flynn. Um, if only because the adaptations of her work that are coming out right now, which is the HBO miniseries of Sharp Objects and the Steve McQueen directed movie Widows, which she co-wrote with McQueen, are beneath her, frankly. And I find that interesting that as she's having this sort of moment of flourishing and fame and success, um, the, the work isn't that good and the interpretation of the work is not good and sort of watered down. So so what did you think of Widows? We we, we went to see it last week. Uh, we did. What, what do you think? I thought if that movie had come out five years ago, I would be into it. Um, and now I just, I just absolutely wasn't. And I think one of the reasons why is because this story, which is essentially a story of women good, men bad, has become a very dominant story in our popular culture. And five years ago, it would have felt fresh and interesting because it would have been sort of dismantling um, these very sort of gender normative um, stories of women being weak, women being um, materialistic, um, all the all the sort of bullshit wife narratives uh, that the world has to contend with. Um, but in our culture right now, it lines up too perfectly with some very lazy storytelling about how men are all corrupt and greedy and women are virtuous and good. Um, and that bothered me. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was like even surprising to me how in one point of the movie, it's it's a it's a line that Viola Davis literally says, right? Like, um, to pull this job off, we have to behave like men, right? And we have to look like we behave like men, right? Which is, yeah, kind of uh, a cheap move on the end. Um, 
it was it was a very surprising thing. One of the things that surprised me the most was, um, and I didn't expect it, Gillian Flynn to do that in her next in her second uh, somehow movie related thing was that she pulled off the move of uh, the dead the, an inverted gun girl right so the husband was alive all along and then uh, but didn't feel like it kind of added to the story or anything like that yeah yeah the gender politics of gone girl are so much more interesting and complex than the gender politics of widows. And I know that it's based on a TV show. And so it has to sort of adhere to um, the storyline that doesn't originate with them. And I also know that, um, you know, it's also Steve McQueen's project and not something that originates with her. So you're sort of working within somebody else's parameters but it was just so disappointing to see her work, um, I guess, wasted in that way. Um, uh, because Gone Girl, in a lot of ways, breaks the fuck out of these this idea that women are better than men, that women don't lie, that women don't cheat, that women aren't violent. You know, you have a woman sort of and not behaving in a masculine way, like in widows of just like, well, if we just turn ourselves into men, then we'll be successful. But using, the, uh, you know, um, not just her own femininity, but the expectations for femininity to pull off a con job. Um, that to me is much more interesting and complicated than what Widows was putting forth. Yeah, and and, and it felt very gracious, like on both ends, on on Gillian Flynn's and also on Steve McQueen. Uh, one thing that was very surprising, or that I found very su- surprising as well, was um, Steve McQueen is like known for like very deep explorations of each of its characters. You know, you have Shame, which is like this somehow excruciating uh, inside view. Uh, on Fassbender's character, um, but then you see Widows, and you can get, you can see that all of those characters are super well constructed, but they're not necessarily explored because what needs to be um, at the surface and that what what needs to have the highlight is this idea of of like women behaving like men, right? So it's it's not about the exploration of of the racist. Uh, Chicago-based politician that is trying to um, leave a legacy for his son and how the son is somehow ambiguous about it. Uh, it's not about this immigrant um, girl that is uh, offered as, you know, like as, as a companion and considered as a wife and things like that. All of those characters that are shaped in the first act of the movie so very keenly, they're not explored because what matters is this thing of the of the woman behaving like men. Uh, so that's, that was also like a little bit of a shame not to be too referential on McQueen's job. Well, putting Colin Farrell in a movie and giving him nothing to do um, except, you know, sort of wine is also a shame because he's such an interesting presence and he was given absolutely no interesting lines or character or motivations or anything. It, it was a very sort of, you know, simplistic um short story about the father um the overbearing father and you know the son trying to 
either, you know, negotiate living in his shadow and, and so on, which has been done a thousand times before. And he had maybe eight minutes of, of screen time and it was all sort of, it was all sort of wasted. Yeah. And then like also completely unrelated to uh, gender identity politics, but one thing that the movie almost pulled off, but then at the end fell victim of it is that, that thing that heist movies have, um, like all of these Oceans movies, 11, 12, 13, 14, all of that they have made, the eighth, all of them. Um, did they make a 14th or did you make that one up? Did you well, just like get, get excited by the counting and then like <laughs> went too far? Did well, they make one? The, well, the the 14th is the, the eighth one, right? The oh, one that okay. they released recently. Uh, I, I, I didn't see it, but I think there's a cameo of, of George Clooney at some point. So you could consider the 14th. Um, you I, know, wa I watched it over the shoulder of somebody on an airplane. It looked bad. That's all. That's my only comment that I have. But then as bad as these movies are, you know, they they, they don't pose themselves as a, as an avant-garde kind of political message, you know, that you're just like high fun and, and celebrities for the sake of celebrities, right? And these movies fall into this thing that at the end, someone knew what the other person was going to do ahead in advance, and then they plan seven steps ahead without any rationale behind it, right? So all of these movies are based on that premise that at the end, there's this clever guy, uh, Danny Ocean or whatever, and then he's always 20 steps ahead in the competition. So if someone was spying on him, then he was spying on him. And then there was another spy, but he also saw what the other spy wanted to do. So anyway, um, so for those kind of movies, it's okay, right? You know, it's, they're just blockbusters and, and so on. But I was surprised that in Widows, at the end, it's the same thing, you know, like, well, well I was expecting uh, uh, an outcome that would match these posts of... of gender identity and, and and kind of a politicalness about what the premise of the movie is. At the end, it was the same thing, you know, Viola Davis keeps the gun and then somehow she manages to... Um, yeah, spoiler alert, oh, yeah, spoiler whatever. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you so, if you need, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she keeps the gun and then at the end, she always knew that the husband was alive and blah, 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 blah. Um, so that was also kind of a, a downer. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the portrayal of the marriage in Gone Girl versus Widows, like, um, again, five years ago, I probably would have been excited by seeing a woman murder her husband on, on, in a movie. Um, but um, now it just seems, yeah, now it just sort of falls into the storyline of when we see women behaving like men, we we get excited about it and men murder their wives all of the time and whatever. Um, but the marriage in Gone Girl is so complicated and so interesting and vital and has something to actually say about heterosexuality where Widows is just sort of retelling the same old story just from a different gender dynamic. Um, do, do you want to talk about the Gone Girl marriage? <laughs> Uh, all that I can say about Gone Girl is that it's a movie that we come back to a lot a as lot. a couple, mm -hmm. um, um, which is it's a good thing. It's a, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, it, it's an extremely interesting exploration. Like, I wonder what would have happened if if the order of the movies was was the other way, right? If mm -hmm. Widows would have come first, and then we have gotten Gone Girl in 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 two thousand eighteen, right? Um, that would have been rather more interesting uh, turnout of events. Yes, because certainly the social media climate 
did not respond well to Gone Girl then, but it sure as fuck would not respond to it now. Now that, um, um, now in the age of Me Too, where we have a very even more hardened idea that you know women don't, um make false accusations of rape, which we see her clearly doing twice in the film. Um, and, and these sorts of things that, you know, when they show up in pop culture, are just seen as, as being the enemy. Um, it, it would have had a much more, I think, um, vitriolic response than it did then. And it, and it had a vitriolic response um, at the time. Do you think so? I mean, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I also feel that this current moment is a moment and the reasons are infinite. Um, it's a moment that kind of rejects complexity mm -hmm. and only decides to grab a couple of things that are like aligning with uh, individual identities and then absorb that thing and embrace it in their narrative, right? So as I see what you were saying, like I also think like that's such a complex movie that this moment, I don't think they would, they would have give a shit. I'm, I could easily see people saying like, yo, yeah, so she killed um, Desi who was trying to mold her and that's what we need to do with patriarchy. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So box cutters would be the next. Oh, she would be trend. the hero suddenly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, I don't know about that. I mean, I could see a market oh, for maybe. box cutters in yeah, purses. Like, on a t-shirt, yeah. 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 Um, Cut patriarchy's throat. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that would be equally a bad response uh, to Gone Girl. Like from from what I remember, because I had I had gone to see it opening night because you know the idea of Fincher doing that adaptation because I had fucking loved that book, um, and I've been a I I've been a huge fan of, of Gillian Flynn since um, Sharp Objects um, when I read that in i don't even fucking remember what year that was like 2008 or 2007 or something like that it felt wholly new and i'm not somebody who reads a lot of crime or genre genre work um but it seemed so interesting and new in the way that she deals with femininity um wholly separate from any sort of like, you know, women's fiction or um, crime fiction or anything. Um, and I think this sort of takes us to the New York Times piece about her that bothered me, even though I absolutely respect um, the woman who wrote it, Lauren Euler, uh, who I've worked with in the past. Um, the way that it was framed in this, like, what does Gillian Flynn have to say about femininity? The thing is, like, she's not just talking about femininity. She's talking about, you know, she's talking about women and society's expectations for femininity and how to manipulate that or how it can be manipulated. Um, and the piece took this tone of what can you tell me about myself as a woman to woman, you know, as a woman reading a book by a woman who's writing about women? What does it say about me? And I think that's such a waste of time as a, um, as a project and also simplifies Gillian Flynn um, in the way that her work is now being simplified in Sharp Objects and, um, and in Widows of what does it say about women? Like in this sort of celebration of 
women era that we're in where women can do no wrong and they have this sort of magical aura. Like, I think it's really um, uh, lazy to look at her work in that way. I, I think of her as like this sort of crime fiction Jane Austen. Like, it's not just about the characters. It's about the society in which they live. But I fucking hate Jane Austen. I have to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, again, it's it's a, a, reje- a total rejection of complexity in someone's work and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I read that interview as well, and and although I got uh, different feelings, to me, again, like the 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 final message to me is like if I had seen Gun Girl stick only to 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 the killing, to the box cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, killing you know and and then trying to Im- imagine yourself making an interview with david fincher and julian flynn and only talking about one that one particular scene you know and what does that scene tell us for uh, about uh, me too about, yeah, yeah yeah about me too and and about myself as a woman should my husband be afraid of me mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. so it's, it's and i want my husband to be afraid of me right like yeah yeah, yeah. and then which Maybe as a derail, but that's also one thing that David Fincher is very good at, you know, like exploring those complexities. And those complexities don't necessarily have translated into uh, box office successes, right? Uh, although he did The Social Network, and it's uh, my favorite movie of all time, my favorite soundtrack of all time, and it's uh, <laughs> what got us together to some extent. Um <laughs> That movie isn't about complexity, but rather it's like a very uh, unidirectional crime thriller, you know? Mm-hmm. So what was so appealing about it is not the exploration of complexity, but rather treating this uh, tech drama as a crime, mm-hmm. as a crime thriller, right? So that was what was so appealing in it. But if you see uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, a movie with such poor reception, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a movie that it's so complex. And although I feel a little bit um, betrayed by Daniel Craig using his English accent and being the <laughs> only actor in the whole fucking film that doesn't make a small effort no, to, to not, you know... Not even a little, little To play bit. a Swedish accent. Well, it's like Sean Connery in the in the Humphrey of the Red October where he's playing Russian with a Scottish accent and it's never addressed <laughs> in any way. It's just like that thing of like some people just like, no, I'm, just, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me also of uh, Natalie Portman's poor English accent, British accent in, in V for Vendetta. Well, any, Another one that we any, any of her accents, I think, uh, in it at all. But, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, again, and going back to, to this interview in Two Widows is a total rejection for complexity, you know, and, and, and that's a symptomatic thing, you know. I, I wonder, like, you as a writer and you that you put ideas out there and sometimes those ideas suffer the same process. You know, there's some tidbits that are taken to heart and then absorbed and then taken to extremes of a conversation or a gen- or an, um, personal identity or anything like that. So for you, you, what does that tell us about culture right now? This rejection of complexity and this um, like non-break uh, course of going all into extremes and fanatism. Yeah, Na- Yasmin Nair wrote um, a wonderful piece this week about Nanette, um, and but it wasn't really just about Nanette. It was it was about the reception to it and how it was sort of immediately being heralded as 
not just good, but important, right? And within the piece, she talks about how we don't absorb entertainment as art anymore. Now we want it to be an opinion. So if a piece or a movie or a book doesn't have a clear agenda, then we don't know what to do with it and we reject it. Or we cut out everything that's complicated about it and argue from a position of, well, Gone Girl is about women's empowerment or Gone Girl is a um, abomination because there's a woman faking a rape um, or something like that. That we are looking for a very sort of simplified core in the things that we consume now. And critics or sort of support this by not um, dealing with the complexities of the work and and doing you know having a sort of hot take rather than a nuanced conversation about a piece, um, and you know you definitely see that in. Um, I know you didn't see this, but um, in the television adaptation of Sharp Objects, um, it was very much a kind of um, it was a you know, taking a book about trauma, um, but also, again, these ideas that she has about how a sociopathic or a um, angry or vengeful woman can use the expectations of what femininity is um, in order to game the system, right? So in Gone Girl, you know, Amy Dunn can use this narrative of the missing white lady in order to frame her husband for her death in sharp objects. It's um, a teenage girl uses this idea of the teenage girl of always being in peril and always being the victim in order to murder um, her, you know, girls at her school. But a lot of the sort of more interesting moments of the book are completely taken out um, in the TV show. And one of the moments that I was really sort of upset that was missing was that, you know, the character, um, the, the main character played by Amy Adams in the adaptation has this experience of a, of a gang rape slash gang bang, um, from when she was a young teenager. Um, and it's unclear the levels of consent. But in the book, it's her female friends, her girlfriends had delivered her to the boys. Um, and in the TV adaptation, it's just her being victimized by the boys, um, which is such a um, complicated but interesting idea. But we, I think in an era of, you know, Me Too and so on, where women are the victims and men are the victimizers, the idea that um, girls play into that and, you know, are, are capable of victimizing each other and other people is makes people uncomfortable. So it had to it had to be removed from the piece. That's it. Sorry. <laughs> You're looking at me like, please don't ask me to say anything right now. <laughs> uh, I didn't see, I didn't see, I didn't see uh, sharp objects. So it's very hard, but um, circling back to this, to this thing of um, rejection of complexity and like curating the tidbits that identify with your politics. It, it's, it's, it's like sports, right? Like uh, <laughs> this weekend we were 
uh, in Philly, and we mm -hmm. tried and failed twice to see this. Not <laughs> not because not because you wanted, but it, it was more like a commitment. Uh, mm -hmm. We tried twice and failed to see this soccer game, soccer match that has been uh, branded as the end of the world, the end, the last match of the world, because you know there's a lot of history and it's in between two eternal rivals and so on and so on. And the match could not be played twice because you know this blind fanatism that to me looks like Twitter nowadays, you yeah. know, and it, it went to the extreme that some fans just threw rocks at the bus and jumped in and started hitting some of the players from the opposing team, you know, which is like a, a, a banality, you know, and then Twitter now is kind of following that same, that same dynamic, you yeah. know, so then um, it's kind of a blending of these two things, right? Like you have uh, you have the eagles, you have the bears, you have the feminists, you have the leftists, and yeah. and so on. So um, that's 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 something very interesting about it. Yeah, I, the the this morning's and the weekend's response to um, a piece in the New York Times op-ed section by Andrea Long Chu about. Um, about whether or not her medical transition, surgical transition would make her happy. And people were freaking the fuck out about it. Um, and part of that is, it, it seemed obvious that a lot of the people that were sort of having opinions online um, hadn't read the piece or only read it with the expectation of hating it because they had seen other people hating it. And so um, they wanted to participate in that hate. So they were just looking for a reason. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of nuance going on in that conversation, but yeah, it was really, it was really, um, I, I don't know how I would have dealt with that day if I had sort of woken up and, and that was just in my face. Um, yeah, also to add to those two tiers that you were putting off of the categories of people that commented that piece, I think in my perspective, there's a third one. It's also uh, the people that w went to the piece expecting a super positive piece, super joyful and happy about uh, gender transition and, and all of this process and kind of felt like completely defunded because it made an attempt to maybe personal values or or ideological values mm -hmm. um but i love that piece i love that piece i um i mean i have a very close case you know i, I grew up with a sister and now i very proudly call him a brother um and and the process has been super difficult super 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 complicated in ways that are like just as they are portrayed Mm -hmm. in this piece um and and it's 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 very funny for me because i mean i'm um, i'm a straight man and 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 although i have lived that experience through my sibling um it's not an, an argument that i in this kind of conversations i can just kind of state or pose you know because you know it attempts to identity politics or whatever, but mostly because it's such a complicated thing, you mm -hmm. know? Those transitions are so complicated and so traumatic, you know? And, and and I hadn't read a piece recently that addressed it in such an honest way, mm -hmm. you know? But then again, you know, like people were 
posting opposite sides, you know? So either um, trolls that are like with anti-diversity or liberal mindset were like, yeah, that this is the proof that this is a, an abomination and that we should, the, the worst gift that we can give to our kids is in, in showing them how to be gay and all these mm -hmm. things, right? Or the opposite end, you know, the ones that they were looking for like a, pro-transition and, and, and moving this in a very forward, fast-paced way without addressing the complexity. Um, yeah, looking for the happy ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... I, I think we're not used to reading a piece like that um, without it being propaganda. So it's not enough to represent your own story. You have to be a representative for your entire demographic, which means you have to be concerned about how you are making this entire demographic look, right? Um, and this happens, I think, all the time on the left, especially when we're in these sort of civil rights battles, when we're, you know, looking for... Um, acceptance or, you know, that terrible word tolerance, um, where you want to make the case of, no, we're normal and we're just like you and we have a shared story and this is just how we are. Um, you know, Yasmin Nair, um, in, in this piece, um, this week wrote about how, it now becomes impossible to talk about sexuality as being a choice. So you're not allowed to say that you became, um, uh, that you started dating women as a woman, um, as a choice, as a political choice or, you know, whatever, or you're not allowed as a, as a man to, to say that you started sleeping with men, um, as a choice. It has to be inborn. It has to be completely against your will because if you choose this, um, that tolerance goes away immediately. And that tolerance is sort of built on this idea that, oh, well, you're born this way, so there's nothing we can do about it, which is essentially um, acceptance based on pity. Like, you're a complete monster, but you can't help it. So, well, you know, we'll give you some food and a blanket and, you know, we'll let you live. Um, but that's not acceptance. That's not tolerance. That's, it's pity. Um and so, but we want to present ourselves in an uncomplicated way in order to gain acceptance, not understanding what we're losing when we lose complexity. Yeah, and, and it's also very interesting what you're saying about um, like this idea of choice. And um, because I also feel like, and looking at these Twitter things and also because I... <laughs> I stuck your your mentions in Twitter a lot. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's the same thing. It's like um, this reject, like choice somehow has the implication that you can change your choice, you know, that you can take wrong choices or right choices. And those things can inform a change in your choices, right? Mm -hmm. Either a repetition of successful or unsuccessful choices or a change in the path, right? Um, which is complexity in itself, right? But even even in the way that um, uh, uh, writers or a filmmaker, or whatever a culture maker work is being observed by these by these platforms, it's in the same way. There is no way for a change of choice. You know, it it cannot happen. If you said something like this at that moment, then how are you in this other moment, which is kind of conflicting again? Those things, right? Um, 
so it kind of draws back a little bit from 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 that point and and it's 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 a sickness i don't know well one of the things that was so interesting to me were was how many people were saying um in their criticisms of the piece of um she sold us out to further her career. Or if the New York Times had asked me to write this piece, I would have turned it down. Or, you know, how nice that you get this paycheck in order to uh, use this narrative, whatever. The thing is, like, you know, I understand that the New York Times op-ed section, which I've written for repeatedly, is often a a place of essentially of, of propaganda, of the people on the right you know, espousing sort of traditional conservative narratives of the world of trans people are sick, uh, gay people are deviants, women are morons, whatever. And on the left, the same way, like using it as a, as a place to, you know, Michelle Goldberg's relentless insistence that women are much more virtuous and powerful and whatever than men. Um, and you don't see complexity in the New York Times op-ed section. But if you are, as a writer, given the opportunity to have a large platform and to say complicated things, you should take it, I think. Um, you know, people generally strive for the big platform by speaking in propaganda, by softening their messages, by simplifying everything, you know, people who want to be successful and have a platform like that are willing to throw out half of their ideas and values um, in order to get to that place. But if you are invited um, to say something different and weird and complicated um, to a large audience, I think you should take it no matter no matter what like you should do it yeah totally i mean it's uh it's like it's like we were, we were talking earlier it's like um it's like if the this we're living in in a moment where it's this perverse fusion and merging of fanatism and identity you know it's like uh like like, like going back to sports right like uh i'm a real madrid fan right and and one of its former players uh, he's now being accused and he confessed to being a rapist and that ain't going to change the, the fact that I love that team, right? And sometimes uh, there's a player that does these very doubtful things and it gonna ch- ain't going to change that thing. I'm not willing to put my identity, which is the fanatism that I have for this team, on the line for the complexity of the actions of a player or those stories are even at large. You know, Real Madrid has a story of being tied to the military dictatorship of Franco in the 50s in Spain. He has, uh, it used to have in the 90s, one of the most hardcore fascist hooligan groups in Europe. Um, but all of those complexities because of fanatism, I don't address them, you know, which is kind of fucked up. You it's know? kind of fucked up. Should I, should I, should I take those, those shirts that I have there Real Madrid and burn them? Well, I don't know. That might be an exaggeration, but you should definitely stop calling our cat Ronaldo, <laughs> <laughs> who's a rapist, an anal rapist. Um, oh, but um, I know that's a different team. No, no, I, 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 it's not. I, I don't call 
nor Ronaldo for Cristiano Ronaldo. I call him for the real Ronaldo. You've called our cat Cristiano as well. Anyway. <laughs> um, so you, you, this is obviously not the first time that this has happened where, you know, somebody says something provocative and interesting and something that's sort of like not instantly absorbable and people freak out and say, you're hurting our, our people. Like you're giving fuel to our enemy. And, you know, I remember these conversations in third wave feminism, um, when people talked about how having an abortion sucks, like it's actually, super emotional, uh, physically painful, and abortion clinics in America are primarily nightmares. Um, and you're supposed to shut your mouth um, because if somebody on the right hears you saying that, they can use that against you. But I, I always will advocate for the hard conversations. I will always advocate for, no, we need to talk about these things. We can't just sort of you know, um, postpone them to a, a an imagined fantastical future where suddenly abortion rights are plentiful. Um, we have to have these conversations now so that we can make people's lives better and we can lessen suffering. And I absolutely think that that's what Andrea Longchu was doing in her piece was trying to lessen suffering um, and trying to tackle a system, you know, that that demands a um, psychological benefits, um, in order to allow you to transition, right? Like there's a board, you have to make an argument that this is going to make your life better in order to be allowed to medically transition. Um, and that's fucked up because you, this should be, this shouldn't, that shouldn't be the basis of the conversation. Um, and you can say that this is a vulnerable time, but every time is a vulnerable time for fuck's sake. The world is now, you know, I don't believe that there's a such thing as progress. Like we have to deal with these things now. Yeah. Well, us, we're, we're, we're running in circles at best. Yeah. Well, um, not, not that you do and, and not to abandon a little bit of a, of the Twitter thing. Um, and you're going to hate me for bringing this up. Probably what? Um, and, and as a disclaimer, Straight up, <laughs> I have a lot of issues with Jordan Peterson. Oh my god! Um, but I also see some complexity in 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 that character. You know that that um, needs to be explored and needs to be addressed because. He's also only an example. Anyway, um, before we jump into Jordan Peterson, um, he said something about Twitter that um, that the way that the platform is designed, um, which there is no room for argumentation and not, not even an expectation for argumentation, right? It's more about bold, solid, close statements, right? Um that that nature of, of how that platform is built upon, it's what is determining this the generation of opinion and openness to debate and to argumentation and to complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, if we can sideline Jordan Peterson for a moment, 
um, and talk about the other white devil, Jonathan Franzen. Um, <laughs> because, you know, he, I think he's said something, he said very similar things about, about Twitter and social media, but he's not on them, right? Jordan Peterson is, um, Jonathan Franzen is not. But um, it's interesting to me, I guess both how um, Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Franzen are talked about online. So Jonathan Franzen has become the symbol of um, anti-woke white maleness, essentially. Um, he is um, a throwback to a, a different generation of clueless white male writers. And he has a lot of support from the establishment and he wins awards. He sells a lot of books. He gets rave reviews. Um, but Twitter hates him and it becomes very performative because, you know, not to be, I hated Jonathan Franzen before hating Jonathan Franzen was cool, but I did. But, um, it's interesting how it's accelerated to this place of, um, you know, every time Jonathan Franzen says anything in public, the, the Twitter response just grows and grows and grows. Like every time it's more vitriolic, um, more condemning, more people are coming into it. Um, and it's becoming a little bit insane. Like you don't have to read his books. You don't have to know anything about literature at all um, in order to make sort of easy Jonathan Franzen jokes. But his sort of, pos this, his sort of position as the anti-woke white male allows everybody else to be, to perform wokeness, to, to, if you make a Jonathan Franzen joke, then you are the anti Jonathan Franzen, which means that you are super hip to all of the, um, uh, not just, you know, internet culture and memes, but also, um, black lives matter and whatever. It's the whole, it's the whole punching Nazis thing all over again. Nobody's punching Nazis, but they all say they make, they're punching Nazis. <laughs> what what do you think of um of of uh the last rule that Jonathan Francis proposes for novelists? Right, that's the thing. So this <laughs> it's so fucking innocuous. Like um so the the last piece to freak everybody out about Jonathan Franzen was his 10 rules for novelists, which every fucking writer who's published more than two books that sold more than like 10,000 copies is asked to do this stupid thing of like, what are your tips for young writers and blah, blah, blah. And it's always nonsense. It's always banal. It's always utter horseshit. Um, but somehow when Jonathan Franzen does it, now it's evil, right? It has to be, it has to be sort of vanquished and you know, people do enormous Twitter threads, like debunking his rules for novelists, which are nonsense. So, um, I mean, okay, we're looking at them now. What the fuck does, none of this means anything. They're just words. Um, never use the word then as a conjunction. Who gives a shit? Um, so what's the last one? The last one is you have to love before you, can be relentless, which wait, wait, can, can we read I'm it? I'm getting that tattooed on my body, by the way. <laughs> can just we read to it piss together? Everybody just on Twitter. Can we read it together? So, uh -huh. yes, number number one. <laughs> oh no, no, the ten. Okay, yeah, sure. You, you have, have to, to love, love before, before you, you can, can be relentless. relentless. It's nonsense. What does that mean? 
I don't know. It's like a, it's like he saw a Chinese tattoo and mistranslated it. I don't know. Like, it's really no one knows what that fucking means. Um, but that's the point of these things. Is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like you can. There are no rules for writings. There are no tips for writing. Write the way that you're going to write. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you, there's nothing that you're going to read from Elmore Leonard from. Uh, Ernest Hemingway. I mean, who else has done these stupid fucking lists? Um, from Jonathan Franzen. There's nothing you're going to read that will actually turn you into a writer. So it's okay that he's saying nonsense. Everybody says nonsense. Just who gives a shit? Oh my god! But there's a special there's a special uh, quality of of nonsense, right? So so nonsense nonsense is not uh, portraying itself as a truth, right? And it's because it's so senseless it's also very hard to prove it as something wrong yeah so these um senseless comments and points and lists are very easy to have things projected on mm -hmm. right um which which goes very well with um with what we're talking about like about this radical uh fanatism of identity and personal views of the world um But you know, talking about lists, you were mentioning that you know, like every writer gets asked to to do a list, and blah, blah, blah. well, going back to Peterson, he not only <laughs> made a list, he made a book mm -hmm. out of a list. Clean your room, yeah. Clean your room, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the reason we were talking about Jordan Peterson at all was um, you showed me this interview, which I guess you watched at 3 a.m., which explains that, but um, a uh, an interview, was it G GQ, GQ UK? Yeah. Um, uh, it was like an hour and a half or something insane like that um, with Helen Lewis. And as I was watching it, I was having flashbacks to the Hillary Clinton debates with Donald Trump because both women seem to think, oh, this person is a moron. I can outsmart them. Not understanding that they're not operating on the level of intelligence. They're not, you know, Trump is not operating on a level of policy. Jordan Peterson is not operating on a level of sort of rational thought. They are, and so you can't vanquish them in that way. And so essentially Donald Trump ran circles around Hillary Clinton and Jordan Peterson ran circles around Helen Lewis. But it is a typical like approach to Jordan Peterson to just assume that you can fact check him or um, rationally argue with him and you'll somehow, I don't know, like he'll end up crying in the corner and saying, no, you're right. Women are great. I'm a feminist now. <laughs> oh, oh, everyone should be a feminist. So here's the thing about that interview, and this is this is the 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 origin of this theory that I have might be due to the fact that yes, I watched the interview at 3 a.m. in the morning after a couple of days of writing until late, so I wasn't in my best shape. But I do think, like in this, and that's an, that interview was also like excruciating to watch and produced nothing. You know, I felt, I, I saw a lot of parallels in between uh, what we're talking earlier about the Gillian Flynn interview and this one as well. You know, it was like, 
those that's that's not the conversation that should be had or need to be had we we don't need to feel like that um but here's my theory so helen lewis very respectable she has a career uh don't know yeah like a uk uh feminist journalist for the last like 10 15 years yeah yeah so it's uh she she's got her credentials right but then very short-sightedly she thinks that as you were saying, like the way to deal with Jordan Peterson is trying to outsmart him. And the closest that she gets is when she gets pulled into the realm of psychology, psychology, which is, of course, Peterson's field. And every time that she tries to outsmart him, it's so obvious that it's going to turn the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the interview that's happening, right? So a failing attempt to prove Peterson wrong. And of course, Peterson tempers kind of makes it even more excruciating because he gets rude and he talks over uh, Lewis's words and things like that. But all of this happens while Peterson is wearing an astonishingly amazing Tom Ford suit. I've never seen him dress that well. Right, right. Like, why is he dressed that well in that interview? Right, he's right. Looking, he's looking pretty good for a like a frog or whatever he is. <laughs> And if you and if you do like a simple YouTube search and you see his other interviews, he looks like you know like a granddad, you know, like khaki pants and like a pleated, blue yeah, laser, pants, yeah. and it's so. So I think that this was all GQ's plan, you know, like <laughs> no, seriously, <laughs> put him in a Tom Ford. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. this interview also happened under the what was the framework that the 30th anniversary of GQ UK and they're doing like an uh, exploration on um, toxic masculinity or something like that, on masculinity, right? Um, but then what they get is uh, uh, a woman reporter failing at outsmarting Jordan Peterson. And then not only that, Jordan Peterson dominating the conversation in a very rude way, you know, like rude that is so obnoxious, right? while wearing this dashing suit, you know, like that, what yeah, it's telling me, masculinity, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what that's telling me, the macro is that, you know, this is the GQ men's life. This oh is yeah, the lifestyle. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the thing is like, because she was so um, keen on, I'm going to outsmart him and here are my gotcha moments and so on that she wasn't listening to what he was saying and responding to them in the moment. So he was showing obvious weakness again and again in his thinking. Um, and she didn't respond to it at all. Like it just sort of passed it over because she was just sort of waiting to get to her next point. And also, you know, Peterson is really good at describing in the way that Trump is also very good at describing how the world is right now. What they are bad at and horrifically so, is figuring out both the source of the problem and what to do about it. So if your response is to be, you know, in in this sort of Hillary Clinton way where Trump was sort of, you know, came out with a Make America Great Again slogan and talking about how you were losing jobs to China and the immigrants are here and whatever in order to talk about financial precarity and unemployment and, um, and the, the death of the middle class and all of these other things, which is true. 
Hillary Clinton counters that by saying America is already great, except for it's obviously not like it's obviously not the lived experience of most Americans that America is great because most people, even if they have, um, you know, even if they own their own home and have a job, they don't know if they're going to still have that job tomorrow because there's no stability anymore. So to be lied to on that way. And so Helen Lewis was doing the same thing with Peterson. Like he was sort of describing the lived experience of a lot of men right now. But again, misidentifying the source, which is patriarchy, which he doesn't think exists, but is a sort of like, um, you know, very confining sense of what makes a man and what gender expectations are and how you should behave. Um, but he's saying the, the problem is um, that we demonize those things rather than that's what actually destroys young men. Um, and he's also wrong about what to do about it. But Helen Lewis is sort of saying, you know, um, I don't know, like she was sort of talking about the patriarchy in a way that it was clear she didn't know what she meant by the word patriarchy. Um, and so he could sort of take it apart in a minute. Um, and he made a good point, you know, at one point, which I was horrified by, which was he asked, you know, if um, the patriarchal system is is run by women, does that, is it still a patriarchy? Which answers oh, so fucking obviously yes. Yes, yes. yes. yes it and, is. But the worst thing is that she answered, no, no it's a matriarchy. No, it's a matriarchy. No, it's no, not. Yes, no, yes, yes, yes. Oh. It broke my heart. 3 a.m. I was crying on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, and linking it to, to this, uh, this idea of the radical identities or anything like that, you know, like, um, and sort of what you're mentioning, the similarity in between Peterson's and Trump's modus operandi is that um, in an ideal world in which you and I try to live, right, <laughs> you would see a line of thought, like either if it's uh, a book or a political agenda or anything like that as an equation, right? A plus B equals C, right? Um, C for complexity. See, I did something very clever there. Um, <laughs> but then understanding it as an equation requires that you fully understand A, fully understand B, mm -hmm. and you understand yeah. what is happening between those two, right? But rather what is happening right now is that I say A and I say B, right? And if I identify myself with A, I'm going to embrace B no matter what B is, right? Mm -hmm. No matter if B is like a racist um um, a racist policy or if it's like a crazy ass argument or anything like that yeah. right yeah so it's fucked up it's so complicated well it's just a sense of um not to equate too much jordan peterson with trump but you do have this generation of young men um, who need, who need a dad, right? Because the patriarchy promised them a dad, uh, promised to have, to show them how to be men, how to transition into being men and take their place of power. And they didn't get it because that's not how the world works anymore. Thank God. Um, but <laughs> there is a vacuum. And so it, things just sort of, um, you know, people who are unscrupulous and have and amoral and um 
insane, like Jordan Peterson and Donald Trump and you, whatever. I'm going to hear from Jordan Peterson people again, but um, um, they're completely willing to step into that place and to use that moment to their advantage. Of course they are. But if, if we're not willing to look at them and to see them and address the actual needs and realities of their lived experience, um, then this is what happens. You know, we can't just sort of berate them into not being racist. We can't berate them into not being misogynistic. There has to be a bridge. There has to be a moment of recognition and conversation. Um, and I think that's what I found really frustrating about the, um, the response to the Pankaj Mishra, um, article about Jordan Peterson was that he actually describes and sympathizes with and understands this moment of time for men, um, especially in his book, Age of Anger. But um, it's more complicated and it's not as sort of self-aggrandizing as the Jordan Peterson view of the world. So those men aren't going to read it. Um, and they, you know, there was a sort of, you know, racist, um, response to that piece that, um, it, it, they would all be better served reading Mishra, reading, um, Susan Faludi, reading, you know, all, all sorts of writers who have, um, tried to delve into that complexity, but people prefer simplicity, I think is the theme of this episode. We just found it <laughs> <laughs> after an hour, we found our theme <laughs> in the last minute of, of the episode. <laughs> There's there's clearly like a lot a lot to 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 decompress from that for sure you know um, I don't know I think I think we should we should create a whole podcast based on this idea you think I don't know. <laughs> stay tuned All right. <laughs> forever dog this has been a forever dog production executive produced by dog. Brett Boehm. Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.